I just want to, uh, before, I, before I move on, I just want to say a very big thank you. I, I sent it out there in that email a week or two ago, but I just want to say a huge thank you to the, to the elders and their, their um, energy behind <laughs> uh, the, the whole sabbatical thing and what they did and, and others as well, what, what you all did in, in um, making that happen. I'm just deeply grateful. The, the, those of you that spoke, Joseph and, and Darren and Matt, I'm just so grateful for you all. Uh, Jeff and, and Trevor and uh, Alex, I'm so grateful for you all. And I know that any number of folks were involved in leading worship, and so it just it got spread. And then I know the VBS went on at the same time. And my sneaking suspicion is that that was kind of a big deal as well, right? There was a tremendous amount of energy poured into that. And so um, just uh, um, I'm, I'm grateful to everyone uh, for, for the labor, the effort, the energy, and for your service to the Lord. So big, big thank you. And uh, um, Pat on the back's not warm enough. Big hug around the neck, all right? Uh, grateful, grateful for all that, that you all have done in service to the Lord this, these past weeks. I want to, uh, I want to turn uh, back to this series of messages, and I, I want to tell you up front that, that uh, when it's all said and done, this message this morning uh, you know, it's. Um, I, I really had to pray about it because first week back after after five weeks away, you know, I don't know, out of practice or you want to preach a good message or whatever it is. Um, uh, this message is a setup for next Sunday. Okay, it's a setup. This is just laying a foundation, preparing us for next Sunday. Uh, some things that I have had the Lord lay on my heart uh, prior to, but then really, really affirmed to me in this in this uh, last five weeks of sabbatical. Some things that I want to share with you next Sunday. Um, uh, uh, so this morning is going to lay a foundation for what's going to come next week. Um, but it's fascinating because it's so it's the, these the ideas that I want to share are so present in this series of messages that we've been going through, this True North series, uh, looking at the lives of the patriarchs. Um, so let me, let, me, uh, let me just take a second to kind of reset the stage since it's been, since it's been a while. Um, I, really believe, I really believe that part of the role of the church in general is to help the world not lose sight of true north. We are a compass. We are the world's compass. We point the world to Jesus. By the way, um, we really need to stay focused on pointing to wor- the world to Jesus for two reasons. Uh, pointing people to morality without Jesus will, will, will make moral people end up lost for eternity. It's got some benefit for the way the world works, but it doesn't have any ultimate benefit for people to just be moral people. They need to be pointed to Jesus, right? The other side of that is that it's not likely you're going to succeed 
in maintaining the kind of morality that we would like to see maintained if people don't have a reason to live that way. In other words, if they don't have Jesus, Christian morality kind of goes out the window. Like, why live that way if there's not a reason to live this way? Right? So we, we need the Lord Jesus. We need the Lord Jesus. We need an understanding of who he is through his word to provide us a foundation with any real, uh, for any real moral direction. But, and, and this is part of this whole Wednesday night thing, and I think that, that we all recognize this, we're living in a world where things that were once known by everybody, including unbelievers, to be, I mean, to say it was true north would be absurd because everybody just looked at it as reality. And all of a sudden, it's not reality anymore. And you're realizing that the church or at least what the church is supposed to be doing is part of, part of what we should be is saying, listen, this is reality, and now we're having to say, by the way, if you're deviating from this, how about true north? This is what's going to be good for you. How about this direction, right? That we're pointing true north. So this is just what's happened in the last little while here. Let me, let me just run through this quickly. I look back in my notes and February 5th was the first message that I shared on Abraham. And we're still on Abraham. So there you have it. Um, uh, so, uh, so we've been looking at the patriarchs and looking at how their lives point us true north. The lessons that they teach us about what it means to live a life of true north. Uh, starting with Abraham. And, and we're still in Abraham. We're still going to be dealing with Abraham for a little while. So that was the first one. The five messages prior to the sabbatical here, the five messages prior to that were divided between two chapters uh, uh, in Genesis. Genesis 18, we had a number of messages from Genesis 18 that deals with the angelic visit. I put angelic in question marks, in quotation marks, because one of those visitors seems to have been an appearance of the Lord Jesus. Um, this, this angelic visit before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Uh, part of that was these angelic visitors promising Abraham that he would have a son the next year, right? And, and, uh, and then going and examining Sodom and Gomorrah to see what the condition of those cities were. And, and then Abraham's intercession, his, his kind of deal-making, if there's 50, if there's 40, right? And he goes down and he negotiates for Sodom and Gomorrah. So that was Genesis 18. We spent a few weeks on that. And then we also spent a few weeks on, there it is, on Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac. We looked at it from Isaac's perspective. We looked at it from Abraham's perspective. Uh, so we looked for a couple weeks at Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac. So that's kind of where we've been um, the more the, the broader view back to uh, uh, back to February and then the, the five weeks prior to uh, to my sabbatical here. Um, so let me just let me just kind of uh, help keep the framework of Genesis in mind before we get to the message this morning. Genesis twenty one and twenty two. So in between there eighteen uh, and twenty two, the ones we focused on. Genesis 20 and 21, we covered in some previous weeks. We looked at some parts of those chapters in some previous messages. So we've been, we've been in Genesis 20 and 21 a little bit uh, in the past few months. 
Genesis 19, I'm skipping for right now. I'm, 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 ex- I'm expecting that at some point I'm going to go back to it. But Genesis 19, the, 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 the focus really shifts from Abraham to Lot. And what happens with Lot and his family in Sodom and Gomorrah? So, so, uh, so we'll, we, we might look at Lot at a, at a future time. But right now we're staying focused on Abraham. So we're going to skip Genesis 19. We're going to skip what happened with Lot and his family, and we're going to skip what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah for, this, for, for, for right now. Come back to it. So this morning, um, uh, I, should, I should add, um, uh, so after chapter 22, chapter 23 is focused on Sarah's death and her burial. We'll probably come back to that as well. That's Abraham's wife, Sarah, dies, and they bury her. So there's some useful things we can look at at that chapter. Uh, uh, I'm not going to do it this morning. But that's kind of the, the outline in your head of where we've been, what we've covered, what we might go back and do some covering of in the, in the relatively near future. This morning and next week, I want to focus on Genesis 24. I want to focus on, uh, on, on, um, uh, uh, on Genesis chapter 24. Now, um, I'm not going to read it. It's a long chapter, okay? But I would encourage you to open your Bibles and take a look. Just kind of acclimate yourself. It's the story of Abraham wanting to find a wife for Isaac. Remember the story? Abraham wants to find a wife for Isaac. So he tells his servant to go back to their home area and find a woman that would be a suitable wife for Isaac. The servant goes he finds Rebecca. He brings her home. She sees Isaac. They fall in love. They get married, and they live more or less happily ever after, as much as anybody lives happily ever after on planet Earth, right? So, so this is the story of Genesis chapter 24, okay? So I'm kind of counting on, on some of your Bible knowledge here, of Genesis chapter 24. You can look through it. I would encourage you to read the chapter between now and next Sunday just to have, uh, have as much familiarity with, the cha- with that chapter as you can. Let me share with you a, a little bit about how, well, let me just do it this way. Um, uh, this idea in Scripture of typology, one of the things that I shared in this series on, uh, that's based on the Old Testament is that, there's, that, that often things in the Old Testament become uh, pictures of something that's going to be fulfilled in the New Testament. It's, it's called typology, right? There's these things in the Old Testament that are there in picture form that represent a truth that becomes much clearer to us later on. Um, so, for example, in Genesis 22, we read the story of, of Abraham offering Isaac as, an, as a sacrifice and Every Christian that reads Genesis 22 is likely to be thinking about the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, right? Because we know that there was only one, if you want to call it a human sacrifice, there was only one human sacrifice ever offered that pleased God. God's not in favor of human sacrifice. He's not in favor of of worship that involves the death of a child, right? But what we do have in, in Scripture is the fact that God offers His Son as the sacrifice for our sins. 
in Genesis 22 is an example, it's a picture of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Um, And so what we see in Genesis 22 is Abraham in the position of the father, Isaac in the position of the son, and Abraham offering Isaac in the way that the father offered the Lord Jesus the son as the sacrifice, gives the son. For God so loved the world that he gave, right? His only begotten son. He gives the Lord Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. So in Genesis 22, we have pretty clearly established in Scripture this idea of of Abraham as a type, as a picture of God the Father, and Isaac as a picture of the Son. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, the writer of Hebrews takes up this idea and tells us specifically that Isaac is a is a type, is a picture of the resurrection. Right? Isaac gets laid on the altar. He's sentenced to death. Abraham lifts up the knife over him, and the voice from heaven comes and says, do not harm him. And, and Isaac gets up off the altar, comes back to life from the dead, so to speak. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says that's exactly what happened in a figure, in a type. Abraham had given up his son, had determined that if his son had to die, his son had to die. In Abraham's heart, Isaac was as good as as dead. But the writer of Hebrews says that Abraham does this with with the thought in his mind that God is able to raise the dead. If God requires me to go through with this, God is able to raise the dead. And the writer of Hebrews then adds like a little parenthesis. He says, which is exactly what happened in a figure, in a picture, in a type. Abraham received Isaac back from the dead. He puts him on the altar, he lifts the knife, and don't touch him, and then Isaac gets up. A dead man, come back to life. He's a a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, So in the words of the New Testament, we have this picture clearly established of Abraham as the father and Isaac as a picture of the son. Now, when you understand that, you come to Genesis 24, and here's what you end up with. You start thinking about Genesis 24, and you say, well, Abraham, who we know from the previous two chapters, represents the father, is looking for something for his son, Isaac, who we know represents the Lord Jesus. What's he looking for? He wants a bride. He wants a bride. He wants a wife. Well, if you think of Abraham as the father, and you think of Isaac as the son, right? The Lord Jesus. Who would the who would Jesus's bride be? Right. In the New Testament, what you in fact, it's not just in the New Testament. It's throughout Scripture. You see the people of God or the church as the bride of Christ. It starts, by the way, this this picture, this analogy starts at the very beginning, at the very beginning of uh, of Scripture. In the book of Genesis, uh, uh, where is Eve taken from? She's taken out of Adam's side, right? Taken out of Adam's side, and, and she becomes his bride, his wife, right? She's taken from his side. 
when the Lord Jesus is hanging on the cross, where was he pierced? In his side. And what comes out? Water and blood. Right? This, this, this concept of it takes blood as the sacrifice and water as that symbol of life for us that, brings, that makes the church possible. That makes it possible for him to have a bride. For, for the church to be born again. Have her sins forgiven. And, and so the Lord Jesus on the cross fulfills this picture of Adam and Eve coming out of his side. The church is born uh, because the Lord Jesus offers his life in sacrifice. And so throughout scripture, the Song of Solomon, we have this picture of this love relationship between the king and this woman. And, and, and we have long looked at Song of Solomon in the Christian church as a type, as a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. You come to the book of Ephesians, and everybody recognizes, it's stated there openly, that, that the role of the husband is to be, of the man is to be, uh, is to be a, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. The role of the wife is to be a picture of the church. And this is the, this is the relationship that, that God is picturing throughout Scripture. And then in Revelation, the church is specifically uh, referred to as the bride of Christ. As the bride of Christ. So here's what I'd like to suggest to you this morning. The Genesis 24, let me say, was a very real event that happened historically in the past. This story, I don't mean story as a made-up thing. I mean, this actually happened. Okay? There's a man named Abraham. He had a son named Isaac. And he wanted to find Isaac a wife, and so he sent to his homeland and, and, and was looking for Rebecca. And, and Rebecca comes and becomes Isaac's wife. It was a literal story that, that actually happened. But I would like to suggest that as an Old Testament scripture, it serves as a picture of something that we need to understand. Abraham is, is a picture of the father. Isaac is a picture of the son. Rebecca is a picture of the church. Well, the servant that is sent by the Father becomes a picture for us of the Holy Spirit. This is a Trinitarian picture. It's a picture of the Trinity for us. The Bible never uses the word Trinity. It never uses the word Trinity. But what it does do is, is attribute the characteristics of God to three persons. What Scripture does do is tell us there's one God, and then the Father is like this, the Son is like this, and the Spirit is like this. In other words, one God in three persons. This is the Christian teaching on the nature of God, that He is a trinity, right? And so, for, for what it's worth, I'm going to give these to you. You can jot them down. Periodically, this comes up um, uh, as, an, as an issue for some believers. But uh, I shouldn't have to list the Father. I just threw a couple of scriptures up there. God the Father is described in Scripture as God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. John chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. We have, we have this idea of who God is. 
What we have, and this one becomes a, a, a big issue for some people, but what we have in Scripture is, is that everything that is said about God the Father is also said about God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have this understanding from the New Testament that the Lord Jesus was God in the flesh. So it starts with John chapter 1, in the beginning... Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then it goes on to tell us that without Him, there was nothing made that was made. So what we have is God as the Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ as the Creator. Right? The Word of God, the One who brings everything into existence. We have this identifying of the Lord Jesus Christ as being fully God. As being fully God. I put some other scriptures up there. John chapter 20, verses 27 through 28. Colossians chapters 1 and 2. Titus chapters 2 and 3. Uh, um, um, uh, uh, Titus 2, verse 13. All of these scriptures uh, proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ as being God. As being God. So we have God the Father, and we have God the Son. We have God the Son. Then the scripture shows us that God is also Spirit, Holy Spirit. And throughout scripture, we see this. Psalm 139. Where shall I, where shall I go? Where can I flee from your presence? Right? This, this idea of God as the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, verse 19 is an interesting one. Um, because in Matthew 28, it's, it, it's um, uh, well, I, I won't go into it for the sake of time. Matthew 28, 19, Acts chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. Um, these are all references to the, Lord, uh, to the Holy Spirit as being God. In, in Acts 5, it's the account of Ananias and Sapphira selling a piece of land and telling the apostles, here's how much money we bought it for, we're going to give it to you. And Peter looking at them and catching them in a lie. And Peter says, you've not lied unto men, but you've lied unto God. And he specifically says, you've lied to the Spirit. You've lied to the Spirit. Right? You've lied to God. He, he equates God the Spirit as being fully God. So we have these scriptures that show us so, so here's, here's what I would, the way I would say it. That Scripture, while proclaiming there's one God, ascribes divinity to three persons, and please hear this, and only three persons. And only three persons. You can't add to this list. That's why we call God the Trinity. That's why we believe in the Trinity. We don't believe in two persons. We don't believe in four persons. Because... Scripture ascribes divinity to three persons in the Trinity, one God, right? That's the way Scripture describes God. So, uh, so as, I, as I read Scripture, and I'm seeing this passage in, in, in uh, Genesis 24, and I'm thinking, well, the Father's there, and the Son is there, and there's a bride present, maybe that servant represents something as well. 
Maybe that servant represents something as well. I believe the the servant becomes a good representation for the Holy Spirit. And I just want to share with you from the the story of of, uh, Abraham, Isaac, the servant in Genesis 24. I want to share with you four roles that the Holy Spirit has. Focus on the Holy Spirit this morning. Four ways in which the servant typifies the Holy Spirit. Four ways in which he pictures the Holy Spirit. Okay? Um, So, way number one. This thing. There we go. It's the Holy Spirit's role in salvation. The Holy Spirit's role in salvation. So, in, uh, in Genesis 24... Let me just read to you verses 1 through 4. Genesis 24, verses 1 through 4. Now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, But you shall go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. In other words, what what Abraham does is he sends out his servant to find a wife for, uh, for Isaac, his son. Well, what are we told in the New Testament? We're told, for example, in John chapter 3 that, that, uh, that in order to be saved, you must be born again by the Spirit of God. You must be born again by the Spirit of God. In other words, this idea of, of, the, of the servant being sent out to find a bride is, is, is uh, described in the New Testament, is pictured for us in the New Testament as what God does to save people, to bring, him, bring them to Himself. You must be born again by the Spirit of God. Let me say it this way. Without the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, there's no salvation. But without the work of the Holy Spirit, nobody comes to the Savior. Nobody comes to the Savior. Okay? It takes the Holy Spirit drawing people to Himself. And by the way, when you come to the Lord Jesus and you believe in the Lord Jesus, what the New Testament tells us is that God puts His Spirit within you so that you are truly born again by the Spirit of God. He comes to live within you. He comes to take up residence within you. Right? So the, the, the Old Testament picture here is of Abraham sending out his servant to find a bride in the same way that in the New Testament we see, we see a, a God who sends his spirit into this world to bring men and women to himself, to save them. Now, let me give it to you as, uh, as specifically as I possibly can. And I'm going to refer numerous times this morning to John 14 and to John chapter 16. Because in these, in these chapters, Jesus talks a lot about the role of the Holy Spirit in his absence. So in John chapter 16, verse 8, you read this. When he comes, the he is the Holy Spirit. Jesus has just talked about, I'm going to send the comforter to you when I leave. He says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is the role of the Holy Spirit. 
And by the way, it's a very, it's a very saving role. He convicts people that they are sinful. He convicts people of what righteousness is. And he convicts people that there's judgment to come. That's the setup for salvation. Sin, righteousness, judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit does in this world. Okay? Part of his role, a major part of his role, we're we're told things like eyes need to be opened. But what is he doing? What What are the specific things that he's doing in the life of an unbeliever? In bringing them to salvation, he's opening their eyes to sin. He's opening their eyes to what righteousness is. And then he's opening their eyes to judgment that is to come. That is, he's making the way for them to understand why they need Jesus. Why it is they need Jesus. Okay? Story. Quick story from our time away here the last few weeks. My wife... Uh, my wife, during these last five weeks, had, had um, opportunity to witness to two different ladies, uh, share Christ with two different ladies, um, one here in this area, one up in Maine. And what was interesting about both of these ladies is that, um, uh, that there was an immediate common ground that opened the conversation that, that allowed for there to be a conversation that started between them. And the second thing that happened was, as soon as my wife identified herself as a Christian, the wall went up. Bang. Just like this. Right? And the reason in both cases was exactly the same. I was raised in church. And I don't want to have anything to do with Christianity. I was raised in church, and I don't want anything to do with Christianity. Now, that would be a whole message all by itself that, that could be sorted out. But let me just, let me just say it this way. Um, my brothers and sisters, you and I are called to witness, but we can't save people. It's God's job to save people. The Holy Spirit must be the one who convicts of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It's the Holy Spirit's job to do this. You and I have a role to play in our witness, but you and I have to recognize, and this is a, this is a two-sided thing, there's a limitation to how much we can do. And what it allows us to do is to present the gospel and then if we have to walk away, to walk away at peace knowing that it wasn't our job to finish the work. Every once in a while, you're in the situation where the, 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 the fruit is ripe and God uses you to reap that harvest. And when that happens, it's a beautiful thing. But much of the time, you and I are planting and we're watering and we're sharing the gospel and trusting that the Holy Spirit's going to use it. Right? We don't do the saving. We do the witnessing. We don't do the saving. It's the Holy Spirit's job to do the saving. He convicts of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Let me say this very quickly, though. 
I think we would all acknowledge that there are a lot of, that, that, there, that it may be that people find fault with Christians and with the church, and it can be an excuse for avoiding God. Right? can be an excuse. But how many know there are some people that have legitimately been hurt by the church? There are some people that have been legitimately hurt by the church, by that which professed to be Christianity. And, and I just want to say this. One of, the, one of the things that we want to emphasize in starting small groups is that while it might be difficult to invite some people as a first step to walk into the doors of a church, walking into the door of your home might be a little bit easier. Might be a little bit easier. And the second thing is that it will give them an opportunity to interact with Christians in a way that lets them get reintroduced to a fact that, let me just say it this, that Christians can be nice people. That whether the hurts of the past are legitimate or whether they're just an excuse, please hear this, that, that we're going to love people, we're going to love them for who they are, and we're going to love them where they're at, and we're going to do what we can to take that weapon out of the enemy's hands. Christians are just nasty people. They're judgmental people. They're, they're, right? And we're going to love on people. Open the door of your home and invite someone in. And I, listen, and, and I'm going to say this. I, one, of my, one of my prayers, one of my, one of my heart's desires, I would be so excited, because I'm going to tell you this. If someone was raised in church, if someone was raised in church and has walked away, I can almost guarantee there's someone else in the world that's been praying for him. I can almost guarantee you that. And I want you to know that you can be an answer to prayer. And I also want you to know that if you come into contact with that person, you're part of the answer to prayer that that person, that person's been praying for you. Because you've got a chance to touch the person they've been praying for. Right? That, that, that you and I, Lord, give us some people... I don't know where, if they were ever saved or not. I, let's just leave that alone for now. Let us be the reintroduction of some people back to the church of Jesus Christ. Reach out to people, love them, care for them, and, and be the doorway back to the church. Because it's not just back to the church, it's back to Jesus Christ, the head of the church. Right? That God would use us that way. I think a house is a much more non-threatening place than the church is. It's intimidating to walk through the doors of the church. It's hard. Our homes, not so much. Invite them. Befriend them. Show them you care about them. Remembering that it's the Holy Spirit's work to save them. Right? You can love them. You can share Jesus with them. The second thing that the Holy Spirit does is he transforms people's lives. So there's salvation, then there's transformation. There's transformation. Let me read a few scriptures from, uh, uh, from Genesis 24. Verse 5. The servant said to him, Suppose the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. 
Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Of course, you know the answer is no. Verse 8 then, Abraham answers and says, But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this, my oath. Only do not take my son back there. Listen to verses 55 through 58. Uh, Same chapter. But her brother and her mother said, Let the girl stay with us a few days, say ten, afterwards she may go. And he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, We'll call the girl and consult her wishes. We'll call the girl and consult her wishes. Then they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. Now my point is simply this. That from the beginning of the story to the end of the story, the bride is always described as having the power of choice. What if she will not go with me? If she won't come, then you're free. Don't worry about it. You can't force her. Right? When he gets there and he identifies her, I'd like her to go back with me. Well, let's consult the girl. We'd like her to stay longer. I want to leave right away. Let's ask the girl. Will she go? Will you go with him? Yes, I'll go. It's all voluntary. It's all purely voluntary. Now, I say that for this, that the whole issue of salvation, and in fact, the issue that comes later on in our lives of of sanctification, this is this, this... two-sided part of this package of transformation, what it means for a life to be changed. We need to understand that in Scripture, this is always voluntary. It's always voluntary. In John chapter 14, verse 26, and in John chapter 16, verse 13, there's two words that are used for the role of the Holy Spirit. He will teach you and He will guide you. He will teach you and He will guide you. All right, I have a couple of my children here this morning. I'm sorry, I'm going to put them on the spot. Whether I did it well or whether I did not do it well, did I try to teach you guys? Was I able to force you to do anything? Did I ever try? Did I ever try? Yes, I did. I tried, okay? You get the point, right? Teaching and guiding only take a person so far. The submitting part they have to do for themselves. When they're small enough, you can discipline them, and you can make them stay within certain boundaries of behavior, but you cannot mandate a change of heart upon them. Some things you must discipline for, but you cannot change them. There will come a day when they will have to submit themselves. At the end of the day, the spiritual life is always a process of the Holy Spirit's work in a person's life and that person's voluntary submission to the Holy Spirit of God. It's always those two things. Always. And so what we see is the Holy Spirit will teach and He will guide, but He will not force. He will not impose. 
These are things that the Holy Spirit will not do. The Holy Spirit is persuasive, but He's not forceful. The Holy Spirit is powerful, but He's not controlling. We have to understand that what the Holy Spirit does in a person's life is voluntary. It's voluntary. He will tell you what the truth is. And please hear this. This is one of the beautiful things about the Holy Spirit. He will not negotiate the truth with you. He will teach it to you. <laughs> He's not confused. You don't make... D- he will tell you, but then you will have to submit. It will be your choice. He won't force it on you. Okay? He won't bend truth for you, but he won't force truth on you either. The Holy Spirit is the one that you will have to decide whether or not you're going to surrender to him. And please hear this. All transformation that begins with salvation and then continues in sanctification is a voluntary process between your willing submission and the Holy Spirit being at work in your life. He will teach you, he will guide you, he will convict you, and then you will have to decide whether or not you will obey. It's his work. The third area is impartation. Is impartation. Genesis, Genesis chapter 20, uh, 24, uh, we see this twice. Verse 22, uh, Genesis 24, verse 22, um, the, servant, the, the servant of Abraham finds Rebekah. He's there at the, at the well, and she's watering his animals. It says in verse 22, Then it came about when the camels had finished drinking, that the man, that is the servant, took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrist weighing ten shekels in gold, and he gives her gifts. He gives her gifts. We see it again in verse 53. In verse 53, it says it this way. And the servant brought out articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and her mother, the giver of gifts. The Holy Spirit is the giver of gifts. We see this, John chapter, 14, uh, John chapter 16, verse 4. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 14. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, verse, uh, and, and uh, 14, and then Ephesians 4. The Holy Spirit gives gifts. The Holy Spirit gives gifts. When he comes looking for the church and he finds the church, he gives gifts to the church. When you got saved, he gave you a gift. When you were born again, he gave you a gift. You have a spiritual gift. He has gifted his people. He has gifted his people. Now, just very quickly, uh, I want to say this about gifts. And, and I can't make anything happen. This comes up periodically. Um, I think I've learned a couple things about the relative strengths and weaknesses of the gifts that God has given to me. I love to teach. I enjoy teaching. But God has given every single one of his people gifts. And and I would just like to say that there are times, there are times that God wants to use those gifts. I've said this periodically. There, there are 
there may very well be a time in our service when, uh, and it's happened on occasion, at the end of worship or at the end of, at the end of a message when we're in a time of prayer, when someone will say, I just feel prompted to share a scripture. I mean, the most elemental form of this is that God's spirit might prompt you to pray. And I just, I want to say this. I, I, I want to make sure that all of God's people know that you have permission for this. That there is permission for God's spirit to use his people. That there is permission. That, that, that listen, sometimes it means... Anytime you say something like this, possibilities open up and awkward things can happen. I've been in some settings where awkward things happen. But please hear this. Part of what builds the strength of relationship in a family and that brings maturity to us is working through awkward things together. Amen? Parents, you have to have some awkward conversations with your children. It's part of the maturing process for all of us. Now, I'm not excited about that, but that's the reality of things. But here's the, here's the other side of it. If you're not willing to risk the awkward, you lose the possibility for some really special things to happen. Amen? We just need a certain permission and a certain openness, and please hear this, and we'll figure it out and we'll talk about it. And if there's ever a time when there's some guidance needed, we'll provide some guidance for it. But, but there needs to be, I want you to know, there needs to be permission. If God's Spirit lays it on your heart to pray, or to share a scripture, or to give a word, I want you to know that we believe that God gifts His people. Not one person, His people. And that He can use you. And there are times when that's appropriate. I, I just want to throw out this as well, my second plug this morning for small groups. In that gathering, in that place, God's going to use your gifts. God's going to use your gifts. You're going to be in a small group setting. You're going to be interacting with one another. And the likelihood is um, one of the elders may not be present. And... Somebody's going to pray. And maybe someone will share a scripture. And these are going to be ways that God is going to use us, that these groups can be a, a place for us to be comfortable with God using the gifts that he's given to us, expressing the gifts that God has given to us, because that's part of what the Holy Spirit does when he saves people. He gives us gifts. All right. Last thing. I want to close with this in, as quickly as possible because I want to have a few minutes to pray together. Salvation, transformation, impartation, the giving of gifts, and finally, consolation. Consolation. Genesis 24, let me just, uh, let me give you the, the last example here from, from Genesis 24. 
But at the end of the chapter, there's this, this last part of the story. The servant has been sent out. He finds Rebecca. He brings her home. And here's what happens at the end of the story. As they're approaching, uh, Rebecca has left her family. She's, she's on her way to meet Isaac. As they approach, as they approach the camp uh, that belongs to Abraham and Isaac, it says this. Then Rebekah arose with her maids. They mounted the camels. They followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. That's what he does when he saves us and calls us out of the world, right? We leave something. Now Isaac had come from going to Beer Lahairoi, and he was living in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. She said to the servant, Who is that man who is walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, He's my master. She took her veil and she covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus, Isaac was comforted in his mother's death. Now, there's all kinds of stuff here that I'm not going to have time for, but let me just point out. When Jesus died on the cross, part of what we're told in the book of Hebrews is that there was a joy that was set before him that made it worth him enduring the suffering of the cross. Do you know what the joy was? You. He was purchasing for himself the church. You were the treasure that was worth him sacrificing himself for. His bride was what he was looking for. In the, in the horrors of death, the thing that comforted him through it, brought him through the agony of death, was a joy that was set before him. I will have a bride. It was us. It was us. Now, let me just say that in this text, we have this picture, this thing going on, where we see Rebecca as a comfort. We see the servant, the, the Holy Spirit, bringing comfort into the situation. He brings it. He tells Isaac everything he has done. And it's all in the context of, of bringing comfort to the, this relationship between Rebecca and Isaac. Comfort is brought after death. Comfort is brought after death. Part of what the Holy Spirit does is bring consolation to us. He's the God of comfort. That's why John chapter 14, 16 and 18, uh, uh, John chapter, um, John 14, 16 through 18, verses 26 and 27, verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 7, the Holy Spirit is referred to King James as our comforter, New American Standard as our helper. He's there to comfort us, to help us, to ease us in the difficulties of life. The comfort of the Holy Spirit is awesomely present in the company of his people. My brothers and sisters, part of why we exist as a body of believers is for the comfort of the Holy Spirit to be made known. 
for the comfort of the Holy Spirit to be made known. I want to just say this as I close. You know, you can experience the comfort of, your, of the Holy Spirit all by yourself, all alone. You really can. You might be someplace sometime in the middle of the night, and there's nobody that's available to you. And the comfort of the Holy Spirit will come to you. But I want you to know that, that it's often that he uses people around us to comfort us. And he's ministering his comfort to us through others. This is what Paul meant when he said, the things that we suffer are so that we might receive comfort from God so that we can then be used to comfort others in their time of suffering. Okay? So the Holy Spirit is at work in us to bring us comfort, and then he uses us to bring comfort to others, and his comfort flows through us. It's part of what the Holy Spirit does. I just want to close this way this morning. This is very much a ministry of the Holy Spirit and needs to be a ministry of the church. We need to care about what it is that God wants to use us to bring comfort to others, consolation to others. You and I live in a world of suffering. There's a lot of hurting. Now, comfort takes a lot of forms, and sometimes it means you've got to speak some difficult truths to people, and that's part of comfort. But the point is that God wants to use us to be a people of comfort. Now, I... Um, because of Sunday school, I'll feel free. I think most of you know there was an email that was sent out, so I know this is public. Brother Darren lost his father this past week. His dad passed away. Uh, we need to be praying for the comfort of the Holy Spirit in that family's life. Uh, as I was, and I'm, I'm not, well, as I was praying for them this morning, praying specifically, he had asked me to and I had already been doing so because when, when someone like that passes away, my thoughts immediately go to the spouse. They were married for 68 years. 68 years. So I was praying this morning and I'm just thinking to myself, the difference between a bride losing her husband in the first year of marriage, there would be a certain grief that would be there right? A, a, a unique kind. But you lose a spouse after 68 years, and it's a different kind of grief, but it's, I mean, right? The, the one who loses the spouse in the first year is in many respects mourning what they never got to have. But the one that's losing a spouse after sex 68 years is mourning the loss of themselves. Like, where does life go from here without the one who has been what my life was about? Right? They need comfort. We need to be praying for her. I got permission for this. And if you want to, you can share. I'll just say what I know briefly. This past week, within a, what, a day or two? Within two days, uh, our brother Benjamin Smith, they... Uh, received the announcement that his job was being terminated and then heard from his, the, the person that they rent from that they were going to sell their house. Within two days, loss of job, loss of home. 
Anne's pregnant, they got a child coming. That's a heavy burden for a family to bear. It's a heavy burden for a family to bear. Right? But we're the family they've got right now. And by God's grace, we're going to give as much comfort as we can. And we're going to pray for them. We're going to pray for them. For them, part of what that means is a loss of insurance. They got a baby coming in October. Okay? So we're going to be family. It won't be the first time we've done it. But I'm going to say, knowing the elders and knowing this congregation, you guys need to know that when the moment comes and if the time comes and there's a need, you guys are going to be provided for. Right? Because that's what we do. The comfort of the Holy Spirit comes through His people. Comes through His people. And, and that means that we have to be willing to sacrifice for one another. Amen? So, so we're going to close and we're going to pray. We're going to pray. We're going to pray that God will minister the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And, and I'm going to ask that we practice what I've already talked about this morning. We're just going to take a couple minutes. And some of, some of you need to be prompted by the Holy Spirit to pray. To pray for the, for the Hersick family, to pray for the Smiths. Okay? So we're going to take a few minutes. I know it's long, I know it's late, and I know the, Sunday, the, the children's church is next door. We're going to pray. We're going to ask the comfort of the Holy Spirit to begin to do a work today. Okay? So the floor is open for the next two, three minutes. Don't hesitate. As the Lord would lead you, pray for one, pray for both. Ask the Lord to lead you, and let's pray for one another. And I'm going to invite a few of you to lay some hands on some folks or put some arms around their necks and let them know that you're with them in prayer. Okay? Uh, There's something powerful about touch and something we shouldn't be shy about. All right? So let's pray for one another. Let's bow.